Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. And I'm going to take you on a journey of rich storytelling through our now 40-year rich history. And I invite you to sit back and listen to these eccentric stories. But don't forget to take a few notes along the way because these eccentric stories are going to have tricks and tips to get you to that line come summer. So sit back, enjoy, and then we'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville. Leadville family, I always tell you I've got a treat for you, but today's podcast selfishly might be a treat for me. Today I sit down with Born to Run author Christopher McDougall, who has been coming to Leadville for quite a few years now, who's been uh, just amazing to get to know and definitely pushed our sport forward. So I hope you have as much fun with this treat as I did, and I hope you enjoy hearing from Christopher McDougall. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville, Leadville finds you. Well, Chris, when did Leadville find you? Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what happened. Leadville found me. I was in Pennsylvania working for Philadelphia Magazine, and a buddy of mine named Max Potter had left Philadelphia Magazine and was an editor editor for 5280 Magazine. And he and I were talking, and he's like, you should come out and do a story in Colorado. I'm like, well, the only story... I can think of for Colorado is I'd heard about this tribe from Mexico that ran in Leadville, wherever that is <laughs> back in the nineties. And here's the thing that's interesting to me, Cole, is that I came into this story with a completely wrong notion. My assumption was that if the defending champions didn't return to race, that it had to be some kind of like racism or prejudice on the part of the American race directors. Uh, I assume, hey, you know, the Battle Motto won in like 93 and 94, but they never come back. You know, what happened? They must have been discouraged or not invited. Uh So I thought the story was going to be how it was this small town in Colorado must have discouraged this Mexican tribe from coming back. And that's when I came in with the the idea that the story was going to be. So I didn't know anyone in Leadville or, or Colorado for that matter. Uh, I set up an appointment with your dad. I come into the Leadville race headquarters. He and I talk for five minutes and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I got this story completely wrong. <laughs> and then uh, it just opened my eyes. Like there was just so much more about the race and the community and the history that I imagined. I thought, okay, this is going to be much more of a story than I ever anticipated. For sure. Now, so this is as you're starting to uh, find your way in what this tell's going to be. So you come up to write about the Tarumara for 5280. Um, then almost in- instantly, you also starting to t- started talking to my dad about Colorado's heritage sport and burrow racing. Um, can you tell us about some of those ties as you were covering those articles. You know, it's interesting, Cole. I have a feeling that the reason, well, your dad gets along with everybody. So it's not that this is a special story, but 
I was thinking to myself afterwards, you know, the reason I think I got along so well with your dad is because we're probably both like undiagnosed ADHD. Um, because we sat down in the office, we're being very business-like, race director, talking to journalists, but after 20 minutes, we're both getting antsy, and your dad's like, hey, you know what? You want to go snowshoeing? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I've never been snowshoeing in my life. I would say within 25 minutes of this interview starting, we're out the door in his truck, heading up in the mountains, strapping on snowshoes, and just hiking up in, in the snow. And... um and we conducted the interview, like just tromping along in the snow. And this was like late in the year. It was probably, you know, I don't know, April, May. There's still snow up near, near the past. And then on our way back down, he's like, oh, you should come back for Boom Day. I'm like, well, what's that all about? Oh, man, we do burrow racing. And that's the reason I came here in the first place. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the crap is he talking about? But, you know, kind of cool. So that was it. He kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there's such a thing as a running race where humans run alongside donkeys, and I'm like, all right, I'll give it a try. So yeah, that was my afternoon. Twenty minutes of interview followed by three hours of messing around on snowshoes. Well, and then fast forward a little bit, and you yourself returned to Leadville, returned to Boom Days, and you had an ex- you had your own Leadville Borough Race experience, one that I was actually there to witness. I'd you know, love. I, I, I have a picture of that. I know. Do you have, I have a photo of that moment. Do you have it? I don't. I would love to have it. <laughs> Actually, good thing. I had a picture of me and Curtis. I'm not sure if it's the most. Well, well hey, I interrupted your question. No, but you and Curtis, I'd still love to have it. You and Curtis, um, for a lot of reasons we can get into later. But no, yeah, with, with my question, I just want you to describe you know, now you've written about it a little bit. Um, you yourself were on minimalism, which we're going to talk about that in a minute. I don't want to get too hung up. And then you have my dad and I both giving you advice as you hold the burrow, getting ready to take off out of town. What happened? What, what didn't happen? Everything <laughs> that could possibly happen in a lifetime, I took place in like those two hours. So, you know, first of all, I think people cannot underestimate the altitude at Leadville. Uh, I've been there now, you know, numerous times. And every time I think I've got the altitude licked, I'm wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I, I get out of the car. I'm like, oh, my God, like, I can't see straight. Like, what's wrong with it? Did I catch the <laughs> flu? No, dude, you're just at 10,000 feet. You know, just, um, so when I, I returned that summer for the borough race, and I got there a day or two ahead of time. And I get out of the car, and go, oh, my God, I can't breathe. Like, my eyes are swimming. And there is actually going to be a local, like, five, 10K. I think it's a 5K or 10K, just a road race. Not a borough race, just a road race. Mm-hmm. And your dad, as his way of training me for this sport that I knew nothing about, had gotten us a couple of burrows <laughs> to just run this 5K. So, you know, people with jog strollers and like soccer moms are all lining up. And then me and your dad show up with these two giant donkeys <laughs> just get in the line and, and run. And we ran, I can't, I can't, it might have actually been a 10K come to think of it. So for me, running six miles at altitude just destroys me. Like, you know, my, my head is just swimming and then I get this giant donkey. But it actually went surprisingly well. Basically because Curtis Emery, who is like the donkey whisperer, a guy who's (laughs) 
mastered the sport of both breathing and training and running with burrows. He gave me pretty good animal that day. Yes. And that was probably the worst. I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, it was not the one he gave me the next day. Um, I agree. I don't. He gave me essentially the lap dog of, of donkeys, you know, a very tame, docile, um, senior animal that just kind of coasted along on rails. Uh huh. And that was probably to my detriment because Curtis was like, huh, you know what? This is going to, this is going good. Let's give Chris a Ferrari next time. <laughs> so then the next day is the actual burrow race. And he brings out, do you remember it was like blue thunder or blue? I mean, I forget the name of that one because I mainly know the one he had that day, but I I, I do remember, yes. Yeah, I think the one he had was called Great White Shark. Well, they were both mammoth burrows still. (laughs) Yeah, but he gave me one. I want to think it was called like Blue Thunder or something nuts like that. And it was an, hang on, was mine the Uncut Jack or his? Or were they both? Mm. Well, what I do recall is this, is that the one that I was supposed to use was in the trailer, wasn't coming out, and we had to get, like, six dudes and a tow rope and a two-by-four to just spring this thing out of the trailer. And then your dad answering the lead rope is like, all right, this one's yours. I'm like, this one? It's a freaking elephant. It's huge and stubborn. And, um, but it, I, I think it was, if it wasn't bonded with the other animals, it was definitely very herd-oriented. So the starting gun goes off, and my blue thunder is just sticking with the lead uh, burrows. My, my plan was to just hang it back, take it easy. A finish is a win. That's all you got to do, dude. Just take it easy and get this home. My thing takes off like a freaking rocket, and he's up there with the hairs, and I'm just hanging on for dear life. But just when I thought I was in the worst trouble, I hear this commotion. I look over, and here's Curtis. On his back, rope wrapped around his legs, getting dragged along the asphalt behind this like galloping thoroughbred, and that is when cold clover <laughs> springs into action. So you've been just kind of rocking around on a mountain bike, as I recall, just kind of observing, and you were sort of there to just kind of guide and escort and watch. I was there to save you, Chris. <laughs> oh, were you actually personally assigned to me? <laughs> I mean, we. We thought that the Curtis situation might have happened with you. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I because listen, I believe you guys were so discreet that you were gentlemanly enough not to tell me that I needed a babysitter. Because <laughs> uh, I, I have a recollection of you saying something along the lines of, yeah, I'm just going to be like taking pictures and just... <laughs> But actually, you were there to keep my ass out of the well, hospital. I, yeah, because now look, minimalism hadn't hit my radar yet. And like I said, we'll get into that much more later. But as I remember, I think you had some uh, Lunas at the time. And we were both telling you not to do that. And then I don't know. Then I thought you went to Vibram Five Fingers. Could have been. I don't think that was then. I okay. think it might have been when I came back later. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember that. Because, you know, come to think of it. Well, I was just I'm scared to, the burrow I'm was... If, I'm trying to recall if I was, had been in the 
if I've been down to the Copper Canyon for that race already or not, I might have. No, no, I had, you know why? I'll tell you what it was. It was um, not, not just yet because it was when I came back to actually run the Leadville Trail 100 that I was starting to talk minimalism. But I believe for that first boom days, I was wearing run, regular running shoes. Um, but everything else was also. Okay. Plans for the event. Okay. Okay. Well, now let's shift gears a little bit here and get into more of, you know, what I'm real passionate about. You wrote a book that changed the face of running overnight. And for those of you that don't know, that book is titled Born to Run. And if you haven't heard about it, you've definitely been living under a rock. The book became a national bestseller and is published in many languages and sold around the world today. What do you attribute your success to in terms of like what elevated this book to a bestseller? What do you think was that magic that gave this book the wings that it has? You know, it's, it's interesting to me because usually a book has like the shelf life of like milk. You know, it's, <laughs> it's good for two weeks uh-huh. and then it goes sour. Nobody wants to hear about it again. <laughs> But Born to Run has really lasted, and I think the reason why is because almost every book you read about running makes running seem kind of miserable. You know, <laughs> it's like you'll look at like you know David Goggins' books or uh, any books by you know marathoners. It's usually the story is that running's really tough, but I found a way to be tougher, and I was going through a tough time in my life, but running saved me. But it's always really kind of a story of unhappiness where running is like the test you have to pass in order to get a little bit happier. Mm-hmm. But I look around, and again, you know, at the time I came down to first talk to your dad, and then onward, I was not a runner myself. Um, I had gotten injured a lot and sort of given it up. So I didn't consider myself a runner by any means. And so, and I'd never seen an ultramarathon, had barely even heard of ultramarathon. So it was entirely a new world to me. And I think maybe that was the difference. I came into this sport of running as an outsider, as opposed to someone who'd done it for a long time. And as an outsider, I didn't have any preconceptions of what it was supposed to be. And so I didn't realize it's supposed to be some like test of your toughness. I thought it was whatever, you know, if people right. were doing it, they must like it. And so, and that's what I kept finding. So I'm talking to your dad. He's having a fucking ball. Sorry. Is okay if I drop that ball? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm surprised I went this far. <laughs> but talking to your dad, he's having fun. I'm meeting people in Livelo. He takes me across to the hotel and I meet, you know, the guy who's the hotel owner slash mayor. He's having fun, you know, uh, talking to Murley, clearly fun love it and everybody in the meeting is just having so much fun telling stories and then my very next experience was connecting with this group and going down to the copper canyon uh of mexico to have this race and this is a fun loving crew it's barefoot dead it's jen it's billy <laughs> and so i think the difference with born to run is it may be one of if not the only book about running that's about how freaking fun and cool and adventurous it can be um and maybe i'm wrong maybe there's other books out there but i I feel like that's the spirit 
And so when people find it, they're like, oh, I thought running was supposed to suck. But, you know, <laughs> Jen's drinking margaritas and vomiting in a bathtub. Like, that's, that's new. Well, yes, yeah, sure. And yeah, absolutely. You are a much better better storyteller than the the runner trying to tell that story because you know this is your craft is is that piece of it not the running like you say um and but i mean also with this book it was a, a obviously a beautifully well written tale that really intrigued you and drew you in on all cylinders but how did the marketing for that work how how did this great story reach so broad? I mean, what do you attribute to the marketing success? There was actually almost no marketing at all. This is here's an interesting thing too, Cole, is because you know, born to run. Well, so let, let, let me answer your question directly. So what happened was the book came out and my publisher did, you know, for very little to, to market and promote it because they just did what every book publisher does. They mm-hmm. arranged me to do six or seven events at six or seven bookstores and running shoe stores. And it was all pretty, pretty dismal, to be honest, uh, particularly the ones at the running shoe stores because, you know, people in running shoe stores, they're busy running their business, you know? And so mm-hmm. a guy who wrote a book about running, a guy they never heard of, writing a book they never heard of, and so I remember up in Boston, the only place that would host an event was some little running shoe store. It wasn't even Boston. It was like out in Concord. And it was like a strip mall fleet feet or something. And I come in and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you're over there. And they just had a couple of benches set up in the back by the shoe rack. And there was like three people there. And I'm standing in the back talking to these three people. And that was it. And the guy who actually ran the store didn't even, didn't even come back to lift. He's up there, you know, ringing up sales in the front of the store. <laughs> that was that was typical. Uh, okay. I would go to a bookstore, six or seven people um, show up. Um, and that, that was basically it. There's nothing happening. And so the book came out, say, May 9th. And then by June 1st, done. That was it. And the book was not reviewed by any newspapers. I got no uh, media publicity at all. I was on television, radio, nothing. And so I did six or seven events, done. And that was it. But I'm sitting, so I'm sitting at home thinking, all right, well, every day, people are getting together to go run. You know, it's happening as, as we speak. So why don't I just go where those people are and sell some books myself? You know, and at the time, I'm living in Pennsylvania, and, you know, I'm, I'm an hour out of D.C., an hour out of Baltimore, hour, you know, hour and a half out of New York. There's big areas in every direction for the runners. So that's what I did. I just set up a deal. I went to my local Barnes & Noble, and I would buy uh, a case of books. And with a deal that I could just bring back any ones I didn't sell, uh, buy a case of books uh, out of pocket, and then go up and, and sell it myself. So anytime there's a 5K, fun run, running club, getting together, um, cross country team, college cross country team. I just reach out and say, Hey, do you mind if I come by? Do you have a 20 minute talk? Let you know about this adventure I had in Mexico. And they're like, Yeah, sure. I was, that was it. And I had a case of books at the back of my car and I was hand selling them out of the back of the car. So it became a grassroots thing. Um, and it, that's how it, it happens and bit by bit, bit by bit. And bizarrely, it hit the bestseller list 
off of the strength of purely word of mouth and back of the car, um, <laughs> you know, hand selling of the book. And that's how it started. So then it sort of trickled along that way. Um, but here, here's the thing about it, though. If I'd just done that with any book, it wouldn't have worked. But the thing was, at the same time, this idea of minimalism and barefoot running was just starting to catch fire a little bit. You know, like you just smell a little bit of smoke. There's a little bit of heat. And I think those two things were happening simultaneously, that people are catching wind of minimalism and are interested. And the only thing out there that was talking about it was my book. And that helped us to fuel the, uh, the word about. Well, yes, in my mind, you authored the book that not only brought back the boom to American running, but just as you said, you know, you were kind of the forefront of this minimalism because it wasn't happening in quite these mainstream conversations, it seemed to me. And that sent every, every shoe company scrambling for a new product from demand directly from these writings of yours, basically. That had to feel pretty good, but also probably a bit overwhelming, to say the least. What were you feeling through that period and, and as, those shoe, as you saw those shoe companies make this shift? You know, it, it was interesting. Um, and, you know, you said the word overwhelming. That's exactly what it was. It's like it's hard to figure out, like, what is going on here? Because... There's so many conversations taking place and suddenly you're in the middle of them, you know, some people, you know, endorsing it, some people challenging it, uh, people telling their own stories and their own experiences. It's just hard to find true north as this conversation was taking place. Um, but the fact was, the reason why I think the conversation continued is because actually a couple of companies were substantially ahead of me, you know, the Nike Free had come yeah. out a few years, maybe as many as five years before Born to Run. But again, they weren't really marketing it as a running shoe. It was a recovery but, shoe. Yes. But the, but the fact of the matter was that Nike had figured this out. You know, Nike had gone to the University of, oh no, it was actually Stanford, where uh, legendary coach Vin Lanana, uh, he's a Nike sponsored coach, and Stanford was a Nike sponsored team. And then the Nike reps show up at the Stanford track and everyone's running around the track barefoot. <laughs> and they said to Vin, like, what's, what's the deal, dude? You know, you guys out of shoes? And Vin's like, no, no, I just find that my athletes run better and get hurt less when we do a bunch of our training in bare feet. So they bring us back to, you know, Beaverton and the Nike engineers are like, well, yeah, of course. And there was a televised Nike free ad. It was only around for a little while. You can find it on YouTube now. But to me, it actually does a better job in like 30 seconds of explaining minimalism than, than Born to Run does. Uh, because it shows it shows like in rapid fire an entire sequence of various people who do their sports or their activities at bare feet. So you see like, you know, wrestlers and, and dancers and divers and swimmers and, you know, people, uh, you know, playing games in their backyards. And it's just one barefoot after the other. And then it explains, you know, the foot is designed to absorb pressure and impact. It is designed to spread those toes out. It's designed to pivot and move. And that's why your foot should be free. And then it has like the swoosh, Nike free. 
It's the first thing of that. It's a freaking genius. <laughs> and so, so what was happening though, Cole, was that Nike knew this. Um, Vibram, which created their own five-toed shoe called the Five Finger, mm-hmm. they knew this. Uh, the, the Five Fingers were out there. And so people who designed shoes understood that it was time for a change. And so what happened was, a friend of mine once said that uh, Born to Run is the cereal and the Vibram Five Fingers is the toy inside the cereal box. <laughs> okay. You, you get rid of the toy, you, you lose sales of the cereal. You know, so, so a lot of people, eh, they weren't that interested in reading the book, but they're really intrigued by these cool new shoes. And so that's why those two things kind of helped each other a lot. Well, guy, you talk about a guy with the shoe industry that's been connected through all of this. It was at the time, uh, I think, VP of marketing, Tony Post for Rockport, who then left to become the American president of Ibram here and then now has Topo Athletics. Uh, but yeah. that's a, a ton of other stories. But so now we're we're hitting on minimalism. The book's out. We're you're telling us, you know, about your start in running and a little bit how it started. I remember your passage in the book where you visit the doctor asking why your foot hurt. And uh, now before that, what what were you trying to do? What were your athletic pursuits that got you to that doctor's office? You know something, though, Cole? I, I just remember we we neglected to tie one loose end of a story. Okay. When we were talking about the borough race, and you were on the bike, and we got sidetracked because I, I suddenly realized you were actually there to uh, security guard me. We didn't tell people what actually happened. Maybe <laughs> the, the, when Curtis got wrapped up in his rope, and his uncut, gigantic, like, racehorse of a donkey is ripping across the asphalt, and Curtis, who had to be in his 70s or that was 60s for, for sure. Very late 60s at least, yeah. Pushing, okay, you know, granted, Curtis is cut out of hickory, so he was <laughs> a tough dude, you know. Um, but this is this is an elderly man on his back being dragged by a galloping animal across the city street. And you leap <laughs> off the freaking mountain bike. I, I didn't see it, but apparently you leaped off the mountain bike, grabbed that rope, pulled the animal to a halt, and basically saved Curtis's life. <laughs> Well, he's, he's essentially dead. Man. If, his, if his head smacks the curb, he's dead. That's very true. I've got a. There's part of that story that I don't think you even know. And that was when I was 16. Uh, my dad was in state politics. He was in state politics at that time. I just got my driver's license and I had this beautiful yellow with brown primer El Camino. <laughs> and uh, there, there was a parade in Canyon City and a parade on the same day at the same time in Buena Vista. And uh, this was a first. And Dad decided he was going to send his prize donkey, Mork, my brother Mork, with me in that El Camino to Buena Vista. And they made a bright green neon sign that said, vote for my dad. <laughs> and I got to carry that thing down the way. But it was the first year Buena Vista introduced this two-mile celebrity borough race. 
and Curtis ran over and he told me I was going to run it. And I mean, I looked at Curtis and I mean, he's running against my dad politically now. They're not exactly amigos. And I tell him, hell no, Curtis, I don't have anything but jeans and skateboard shoes on. And, you know, he said, you're cut from a tougher cloth. You're going to do this race. And so I'm entered in the race. Gun goes off. Mork is like you say, used to that gun and away he'll go. We were way out in the lead. We were about a mile through this thing. And I knew about rope handling and keeping it away from your legs. And and I went to scoop up the rope and it wrapped my leg and I went down. And uh, boy, I was scared for my life, of course. And, And I was flying across this prairie road out there by the school and Curtis grabbed that damn rope and stopped that burrow dead in its tracks. And boy, that saved my life. But there I am, I'm getting up, I got tears coming out of my eyes, and I don't know what just happened to me. And Curtis hands me that rope back, and he says, Run, boy, you gotta go! (laughs) And and that spooked Mork, and off we went, and we won that race. (laughs) But yeah, so... uh, that whole thing is just to say, I had, you know, Curtis deserved my repay and his life was. I'm not sure if he does, though. <laughs> it's a good question. Did you owe him one for saving you, or did you have a settle a score for getting him, in the, getting him in the net in the first place? <laughs> a little of both, maybe. I think that's a very <laughs> fair question. Yeah. So, you know, Curtis. <laughs> It's, it's funny. Isn't it funny, Cole, that we're in an age now where we can say we're seeing some of the good ones go? So Curtis isn't with us anymore. We lost Micah True. Isn't that something? It is. It is. And I definitely want to get into some of these stories a little bit more, too, because that's actually the whole reason I've started this podcast is it's these beautiful, rich stories uh, nobody's told them. And so that's exactly what this is meant to do is tell those stories. And it's, it's kind of an extension of even what you've done with born to run, you know, it just keeps all that. It keeps you hungry and passionate and driving towards something. And, and that's what I love and all these new people that are excited from your book. We, we have so many ways to keep them excited. Like you said in the beginning, you know, a book about running that's not horrible. Well, we got to tell those good stories that aren't horrible and some that are just so that, that people know. Well, yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I've now been around the sport since two. Yeah, it's fifteen or so years ago. Since about two thousand four, mm-hmm. two thousand five, when I first came down and started to look into that first article, and I don't hear anybody talk about ultras the way they talk about Leadville. Um, you know, if people are interested in Western states, it's like okay, well, that has a reputation as being like the championship, the Super Bowl. So there's there's that kind of like Boston marathon quality about Western space states, mm-hmm. but 
people talk about Liva very differently. Like that's the one they want to do. Like that's the legend. Like that's the wild west. And I hear this literally for people around the world. You know, if I'm at UTMB in France, they're asking me questions about Leadville. You know, they're not asking about any other race. And my friends in New York City, Manhattan, obsessed, fixated on Leadville. Either they've gone and they haven't been able to finish, or they can't wait to try. And it, it is interesting. Like, that race does have a very distinct place in the folklore of ultramarathon. You know, and I think it's because of the stories. You know, people hear about the adventure of running Leadville, and like, that's what they want to get a piece of. Well, sure. And I mean, Leadville is, there's a lot of magic in Leadville. And I believe a lot of that magic is really the people of and the people that come to Leadville. And I want to hit on, so let's come back to you and your experiences. So you've come to Leadville to run the 100. You're an ultra runner. You've also come uh, to spend a lot of time with our amigo barefoot Ted on the course. <laughs> yeah. And in one year, um, you were, you paced him the one year he finally cracked his own code of running Leadville a hundred percent in his Luna sandals and or barefoot. And while you were pacing him, you did the same thing. Why don't you tell us about what that experience was like for you and help these people understand a little bit about why you're talking about Leadville. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing. So when I'm the whole evolution for me was I met your dad. I heard about more about the Battle Mata. Uh, I ended up going down to Copper Canyon, meeting up with Micah True. And then this would have been like, summer or i can't remember the year now maybe like 2005 it was summer 2005 yeah i was in summer 2005 and mike is like hey you should come back uh in the fall we're gonna do a 50 mile race i'm like well there's no way i can do a 50 mile race but i'll try so i started training with eric and the race in the copper canyon was going to take place like in november but micah sprained his ankle so he postponed it for six months until march which gave me actually a legitimate chance of possibly even running this thing. So I think if he had it in November, I wouldn't have bothered to go down because there's no way I could have gone from zero miles to 50 in whatever it was, five months, no way. But give me 10 months, there's a possibility. So Eric and I trained through that year into the spring, and I ended up going down for the race, which became the story for Born to Run. But when I went down there, I didn't go down there with the concept of writing a book. You know, I thought maybe I'll do another magazine story. I didn't know if anybody was going to show up other than me and Eric. Uh -huh. I didn't know if Micah was going to even be there. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a hard dude to pin down. <laughs> and then when Scott George shows up and Barefoot Ted and Jen and Billy, and suddenly it becomes this wacky adventure, only after it took place did I realize, oh, this is a bigger story than a magazine story. This is, there's enough here for a book. So then I get home. So this took place in March of 2006. So I get back to the United States and I decide, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. But a big part of the book is going to be the Leadville story because that's where Micah met the Tarumata. That became this pivotal moment with the Ann Tracen race. Like so much of the book is based in Leadville. I should really go back there and do some reporting. So I contacted your dad to say, hey, listen, I want to come down I'm writing this book. Can I get 
access to the course. Now, I didn't know enough about Leadville to realize, you want access to the course, just show up in Leadville, you know? <laughs> right. Leadville is the course. <laughs> but I thought I needed, like, permission or a pass or something. So I call your dad. Your dad's like, oh, you can have access to the course. Just sign up and run. And I go, well, no, no, I'm just really new at this. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize you are in a wheelchair. I, I assumed that you had two legs. And I go, well, what are you talking about? I'm 72 and I'm there. He just, he bullied me, you know? But it was so funny. It was like this playful bullying where he's making fun of me, but making fun of me in a way that thought like, I'm like getting inspired at the same time. I'm like, yeah, you know, why not? I can do this. Here's the truth. I couldn't do it. You know, one year to go from a non-runner to doing level, it's freaking insane, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, but he made it seem so possible. And I'm like, okay. So, but now looking back on it, maybe he wasn't wrong. So I, I show up in Leadville that year and I trained, you know, I think as well as I could. It was basically a flawless training program, but dealing with altitude and the distance and the climbs, you know, it's, it's just too much mm -hmm. uh, for mortal dude. But two things happened from that race. Number one was Eric and I came down earlier, like in June. And we did a, a week of training, me, Eric, and Mike Atro. And Mike had come up out of Mexico. He's in level with us. And we actually had a blast. Like, it's kind of unfortunate that so many people only fixate on a race. Because to me, the real fun of running Leadville is when there's no race. You know, just anywhere on that trail is a, is a blast. And you, mm -hmm. you change the whole scenery and topography every two miles. So... We just basically broke the 50 miles down uh, into little sections. And we ran like, you know, a 50 mile session one day and a 15 the next day, and whatever our hope pass the next day. And, you know, ran around turquoise like another day. And we just spent five days just running around the area and just loved it, man. It was so gorgeous, so fun. And Caballo was like in his element. And that made me think, like, you know what? I, I can do this. So then I come back for the race. And here, <laughs> this must happen. I would love to hear a whole podcast, Cole, of everybody's first 13 miles in Leadville. Like the first time you run Leadville, what happened the first 13 miles? Because I would guarantee that 75% of the stories are about how people ruin their race in the first 13 miles. Right. Right? So I, I, I'm into this. I have a race plan. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I take off like a freaking rocket. And I PR, like I did my PR trail half marathon in the first 13 miles <laughs> of Leadville. And I was basically done after that. But, you know, I, I limped it in to the turnaround at 50 mile mark and I, I, I was past the cutoff. Uh, didn't make the cutoff. And I was like, it was actually like a mercy killing. They cut my bracelet off. I'm like, thank God. Uh, but the next day, you know, I go back to the finish line. I'm, I'm cheering in. People were finishing. And I see your dad there, and I'm talking to him. I'm like, you know, Ken, looking back on it, I probably could have done it. I just, if you just give me some more time. And he's like, hey, take all the time you want, Chris. Like, it's not a family vacation. It's a race. You don't spend the weekend out there, you know? So, um, it's, you know, it, it sort of taught me the lesson. Like, yeah, you got to go into this thing smart. But it also put that hook in me. Like, man, I really want to do this again. Um, I get completely sidelined by your question. You're asking about minimalism and running with that bare feet. Well, that no, you hit everything I wanted. 
but then also, yes, what was it like on your next experience with minimalism and Ted? <laughs> well, two things about it. number one is Ted, as crazy as he is, he actually has the best attitude for running. Like he treats mm-hmm. running like it is a birthday party just for him. He's always so freaking happy and joyful. And the second thing is that I put on a pair of his sandals because I was so inspired by what he was doing that I was going to pace him for like the last 13 miles or so. At the last second, he'd give me a pair of sandals. I sort of checked them in the corner. I don't wear these goddamn things. <laughs> but then, like, man, he's out there on that course. He's you know, climbing the pass twice in the dark. And these things, he's fording that river. The least I can do is do the easiest part of the whole race. You know, the race in well, that's 13 is a cakewalk. So, if, you know, I just do him the respect of putting his, his stinking sandals on. And I never worn those kind of, you know, lunas before. He, he hadn't even really started the company, I don't think, at that point. So, I strap him on my feet, meet him at the aid station, and then off we go. And it was a revelation to me because the thing about those Wadachi sandals is they force you to be on your game. You got to be like kind of paying attention. So you're not just striding along. I, I probably tripped or stubbed myself way less in sandals than I have in running shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're actually paying attention to where your feet are landing and you are keeping your feet under your body. You're not just kind of striding out every direction. So you're not hitting roots or rocks or trees. Um, and it's actually really fun. I, I was shocked to discover that as we're running through the dark, uh, I felt really good. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've been a convert ever since. Like that was it. That was my bait voyage. And it won me over for life. Yeah. I was a big convert too. Still am, but I don't think my father shares my same conviction. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He looks like, he looks like, he looks like a big old wedge of protection under his foot, doesn't he? Well, he need yeah, he needs, he needs a little more help. And and he and I both, you t- yeah, I was good at stubbing my feet in anything I wore, but I also did it less in Luna's for sure. Yeah. Um, now, bef- before we go too far along, too, let's go back to the other Born to Run character I really have some curiosities about. And, and one of those that, you know, we want to keep us tell alive, and that's Micah True, a.k.a. Caballo Blanco. Um, one thing that has always intrigued me is how crazy it was that in your book, Caballo basically prophesizes his own death, his last disappearing act, um, basically what he said would be his last disappearing act kind of came true. And then, uh, you know, word kind of leaked out to some of us and spread quickly through the internet. And there you are on your way down to New Mexico personally, or to Arizona to help with the search. I'd love for you to talk about that. It was so weird. So, so weird. Um, what had happened was I had a speaking event that day just outside of LA in Agora Hills, California. And there's a public library. And when I arrive, I'm getting out of the car. And this person comes like sort of bustling across the parking lot, you know, very agitated. Mm-hmm. And comes up to me and goes, oh, are you Chris McDougall? I'm like, yeah, Maria has been trying to reach you. It's urgent. 
Oh, and I'm like, I'm thinking like, well, who's Maria? Like, I, you know, <laughs> okay. my wife's name is Mika. Did maybe she, maybe he, he met Mika. And, and my, my phone had died. Uh, so on the drive out from the airport, my phone had died. So I'd been out of cell range for a while. So I assume he met my wife. And he's like, no, no, it's Maria. And here's her number. Here, you can use my phone. Call her back. Like, okay. So I returned the call. And it turns out it was Maria Walton, mm-hmm. which was, uh, was Kabaya's girlfriend. And she said, oh, listen, Chris, I'm so worried. Um, you know, Micah was driving up from Mexico. And he was supposed to be here, but he's not here yet. I'm just kind of listening to this. Like at that point, they'd only been dating maybe a year or so. And I was just thinking to myself, Maria, you just don't know Mike yet. <laughs> of course he didn't turn up, you know, of course he's late. That's the guy does, you know, he just, he wanders around. Yeah. Um, but then she said the one thing which kind of froze me in my tracks was she said he left Wadahuko tied up outside the cabin. And I, Oh, that's not right. So Wadahuko was just, did you, ever, did you ever meet Wadahuko? I did, dog? yes. I've, I've so, met True Dog, that one, and Ghost Dog. Yeah. It's basically, it's a, it's a, basically a wolf on a leash, you know? So yeah. he's got this wolf thing, but he loved that crazy, you know, crazy savage beast. And Maria said he left him tied up overnight outside. And I'm like, no way. Right. Like, there's no, like, mother that would leave a mother would leave an infant tied up to a post before Caballo would leave the ghost dog tied up to a post. I so, agree with you. <laughs> no, no way. And I was like, oh, shit. If I didn't want to on the hearse, I'm like, all right, well, you know, let, me, let me just call Lewis to see what's going on. So you will off the phone with Maria. So meanwhile, I have an entire audience waiting for a talk. <laughs> but I then call Lewis and say, uh, hey, dude, uh, did you talk to Maria? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm already in the car. Uh, as soon as Maria called him, Louis Escobar being Louis Escobar, uh, took the keys to his wife's SUV, said, I got to go. And he just started driving down from Santa Barbara, like that moment. Okay. And I said, um, I go, where are you going? He's like, well, he's in the Gila wilderness. That's, that's where I'm going. And I said, well, dude, I'm in LA. And you want to pick me up? He's like, sure. I'll be there in two hours. So I said, okay. So I went in, <laughs> gave my talk, drove to the airport, dropped off my rental car. Uh, Louis pulls in. I jump in the car with him. Uh, we pick up Pat Sweeney, ultra runner Pat Sweeney, yeah. who's right outside of LA. And off we go. And we're driving through the night down to the Gila wilderness. Uh, Scott Jorick was down there. Um, oh, what the heck were our names? Our names are something by the Hard Rock 100 guys. Um, last name begins with a C. Ah, kill me. Anyway, uh, a bunch of other ultra runners uh, from around the country mm-hmm. all just zooming in to join uh, the search and rescue operation uh, to, to find out where he, where he was. Well, and I mean, was this, while that was happening, were you also reflecting on this passage in the book or, or just how crazy that turned out to be? Not yet. Um, what happened was, was it Barefoot Ted? If it wasn't Ted, it was somebody else. Ted was a far, but attuned like he yes, didn't he was, not, he was not there but he was and i think i'm going to reach out to him and say hey you coming down and he's like no no it's too late and i'm like what ted you know what the hell dude like what are you saying because he's good ted is beyond the glass half full kind of guy you know ted oh is yeah the sunny side of life kind of guy and the last thing i would have expected would be for him to sound pessimistic 
But he's like, oh, no, no, it's over. And like, what? And then I think he might have been the one that said, don't you remember? You know, he always said, oh. when his time comes, he's just going to walk off in the wilderness, just like Geronimo, and lie down under a tree and, you know, like, like an old warrior. And... I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? He went for a run. He said he broke his ankle somewhere. He's always falling down. And he's like, no, no, he, he predicted it. So I'm going to walk out into the wilderness like Geronimo, lie down under a tree, and that's going to be that's going to the end of me. And where we were, the Gila wilderness, was exactly where Geronimo used to hide out when he was being, you know, on the run from the U.S. Cavalry. Now so, that's eerie. I didn't realize that. It was bizarrely eerie, and. I'm almost positive, and then someone else put that online, put it on Twitter or something like that, the actual quote, which, again, I'd forgotten about because that point had been seven, eight, nine years uh-huh. uh, since I'd written the book. Well, yeah, I just think it's it's wild and crazy. Now, it, it did have a, a dark ending, unfortunately, but we have a lot of good memories we keep alive of him. But speaking of characters and keeping memories alive – um, let's get to a little happier part of this. What memories do you have of Ken and Mary Lee? I'm sorry, what? What memories do oh, you have oh. of Ken and Mary Lee? <laughs> well, allow me to enter the long archives <laughs> of happy stories by Ken and Mary Lee. Um, you know, it's funny. You almost have me at a loss for words because... It's almost like if someone asked you to describe your mother, <laughs> you know, you'd have to pause for a second because this person who means so much to you that seemed larger than life, you almost feel like you're not worthy. And this is going to sound like I'm over-dramatizing it, but you, you almost feel like you're not worthy. That anything you say is not going to be quite up to the job. But I think I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this is that when you meet your mom, Marilyn Ken, for the first time, they act like you're doing them the biggest favor in the world. Like they're so happy that you are spending time with them. And what can they do? Hey, you want some pie? Hey, have you been out for a burger? Hey, have you had some? Hey, what do you, what, you need a new pair of shoes? Those shoes look like they're kind of beat up. You know, you bought a pair of my running shoes. They treat you like you're the member of the family that's been going for a while. They, oh, they're so happy that cousin Chris has showed up. Mm-hmm. And what you don't realize is there's a million freaking people that they're dealing with every day, you know, <laughs> uh, people in town, people in politics, people, um, their own families, people who want to know about the race, people who've run the race, but they act as if they've got attention for nobody but you. And so that's the first impression you make. Oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm happy that I can do these people a favor by having dinner with them, not realizing what an honor they're bestowing on you. And the second thing is just the sense of like mischievous fun, you know, like I remember for me as a new runner, I'm thinking, oh, this is the sport where people like crack their pants, you know, this is the sport <laughs> to put people in the hospital. I'm talking to Ken and Merrill, oh, this is the sport where people like laughing or pulling each other's pants down, you know, having fun in the woods, you know. Uh, I was like, oh, this sounds like the most fun sport in the world, you know, you're like eating M&Ms in the woods at night, what's better than that? Um, but I think ultimately, and I bet you this is the thing where everybody probably joins hands is saying that they make everything seem possible. Mm -hmm. And 
that was definitely the tone of your dad's kind of spoken art performance before the race every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, <laughs> uh, I'm actually kind of laughing because my year is the first time I ever heard your dad give this talk. And <laughs> everyone's inspired. And he's, you know, he's, he's making it seem like, you know, you're tougher than you think you are. You, you already did the hard part. You showed up at the starting line. The rest is up to us. We'll get you to the finish. And he's like, and don't be like Chisholm Dupree. And he goes, oh, it's okay, Chisholm. You're family. I can, I can say this to you. You know, you're family. It's like, Chisholm gets to mile 82. Who gets to mile 82 in DNS? Nobody. Like, you know, what the hell? Unless you've got a bullet in somewhere in your body, you know, even if you do. And he just ripped Chisholm a new one. <laughs> An improvised 10 minute beatdown to this poor kid who's about to start the race the next day. <laughs> and your dad just spanked him in front of a crowd of thousands. And I remember thinking, I don't know this young man. <laughs> I'm so glad it ain't me. But it was so fun and so family-like because probably only three people in the room even knew who the hell he was talking about. <laughs> but the rest of us realized that we're a family, you know, yes. that this is a guy that Ken's going to talk to personally by his name. Mm-hmm. And if he's doing that, then it assumes that we're all now cousins of this poor guy Chisholm. <laughs> and if we see him out there, we better encourage him. So well, I could go on for a long time. And I actually have. You know, I've, I've, I've mentioned your dad now in, in actually three books because I have a new one coming out. And I also talked about your dad. But I think the thing about that over-glamorizing it, I think that your dad hit on something that is just so – unique in the sport, which is, dude, don't take yourself so seriously. This is all fun. You know, it's all fun. Who gives a shit? Have some fun. And that is why I think your dad and Merrill Lee have made Ludlow what it is because it's not no guts, no glory. It's, you know, no smile, go somewhere else. Yep. That's, that's very true. Uh, and you hit on, on something real personal to me and that's Chisholm. Um, I don't know if you know this. Chisholm's dad is Harry Dupree. He's he lives in Mustang, Oklahoma. He's a romping, stomping, retired cowboy investment banker now farming. And uh, he and Dad were real good compadres out on that trail. Chisholm or uh, Harry belonged to the Oklahoma Ultra Runners Club, I think that might have been the actual name, but he'd always show up in a white singlet and shorts, and he just had the most beautiful silver flowing hair. And he's the only guy I knew that would finish that race the same way he looked when he started it. And then he also has the record for the real last ass over the past. He finished one year, in 29.59.58, I think. And, and, and he didn't even break an extra stride to get to the line. Well, fast forward for me. Chisholm and I are legacies. Chisholm's eight years older than me. I'm 21. I think I need to do the race. And it's the same time Chisholm's being less rowdy enough to be a runner himself. And so we both go try to do Leadville. 
And it, this is 95, right after the Taramara. By God, I'm just going to be great. We go do this. It rained for the first 12 hours of the race. That wasn't even a problem for me, but the pro- I pull I did what you did, I limped it into to Winfield, just tears in my eyes. Couldn't ask him to cut the band off because I couldn't talk. They cut it off. My dad blew me a kiss and said he'd see me at the finish. But that same year, Chisholm finished. <laughs> And that that finish you're talking about where he quit, yeah, that was for Chisholm's 10th year. And then so, like, over 10 years later, I finally do Leadville and finish. And Chisholm calls me to congratulate me. And we get to reminiscing, and I say, you know, do you have any regrets for dropping out at mile 88 at Main Queen? He says, not a fucking one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he did. He came back. He came back for his 11th year. And that was the year you're talking about. And he got it done. That's funny. So it must, that's why it was so fresh. Because it must have just been a year before. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad and his dad, two tough Cowboys cut from a very different cloth, and they're trying to drag your butt out of that t- tent, and you quit. Boy, I've quit in front of my dad, and it's not fun. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, I remember when I talked to your dad too. So after I got timed out at Winfield, I was talking to your dad to get the finish line the next day. He said, like, "What happened to you?" I said, "Well, I got timed out. Uh, they cut the bracelet off." Was like, and that stopped you. <laughs> What do you mean? He's like, you should have just covered the bracelet up and kept going, you know? Like, don't cut it off yet. And I'm like, you're yelling at me for not breaking your rule for your race, you know? But I, I thought it was kind of hilarious. He's like, yeah, he's like treating it like it's a game, you know? Don't let him cut it off yet. Just dodge him. Well, yeah, and then the other part of the game is if he finds one on you after the cutoff, he's going to try to put you on the crybaby list. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, that was cool. That's cool. And again, that's the thing. Oh, here's another thing. So do you remember the year at Western States when Scott Jork was not running, but he agreed to pace somebody else? And um, this would have been right around the same time. I think it would have been around 2007, 2008, something like that. And so what happened was this was a guy um, – this guy's pacing, and this guy comes in the last mile, but he's a zombie. He's the walking dead. He's staggering around. He collapses on the track. He gets back up. He's coming into the finish line, and Scott, who's pacing him, uh, helps him up and puts an arm around, or puts this guy's arm around his shoulders, and he walks him across the finish line. And this guy gets rushed off to the hospital, and he's declared the winner. He gets rushed off to the hospital, but while he's in the ER, uh, the Western States. Organizers come in and say, actually, you're disqualified for getting assistance on the course, and, and you're out, and uh, the other guy won. And I was asking your dad about that. I said, would you, would you have done that? And your dad's like, fuck no. No way. I would have given that guy two medals, you know? If you're that tough that you're staggering across the line, you get that far, I'm not going to steal your medal. You're the winner, you know? But what I loved about it was here Western States has this, like, you know, small print rule that this is what you got to do and you can receive no assistance. And your dad's like, 
you dudes are missing the point, you know? Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit? What people are going to remember is not whether you follow the rules. They're going to remember this guy was valiant enough to literally run himself into a freaking hospital. And so yeah. to me, like, that's what people are missing. Like, that's what's so epic about yeah. Lidville. Is it's not about... And there's the other thing, too, when I was asking you guys, how come the Taramara were never invited back? He's like, they can come back and they tell me what. Like, because I, you don't understand. I don't care about the winners. I care about the guys at the back of the pack. Like, that's our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's those people that are coming in at 29, 58.59. They're the ones that people are excited about. They're the ones that are telling their friends, this is the achievement of a lifetime. It's like, the champions, they come and go, you know? Yes. They win Leadville, they move on. Uh, it's the guy that cannot believe he did it. Like, that is what the race is all about. Yes, that's the magic. For sure, yeah. part of it. I mean, it's not all of it, but it's a, a good bit of it. Hey, uh, Chisholm, do you know? Oh, sorry, Chisholm, uh, Cole, do you know about the guy that, that raised his fingers? So I, I always heard this story that there's one guy. He's coming in, time's running out, the clock's ticking down, people are losing their minds. He's not gonna make it, and he just falls across the finish line just as the clock ticks over. <laughs> And he, he collapses, and people like on top of him, like, is he okay? And they said that just this hand emerged out of the crowd, up in the air, and just held up a single finger. Like, Ugh. that was the dude, like, I did it. Do, do you know about that? I actually think I do. There's been, and there's a very early one like it that was from like the one of the first two years, because I was a, a child. And I remember this this other guy just like that because this reminded me of that. He fell across that line, and you know they put him in the ambulance. I mean, we had the ambulance right there. This was back in the day when we still thought we might kill somebody, and uh, you know they rushed him off, and and he was fine. He's just severely dehydrated, and but yeah, it's that. That's if that's what. My dad wants everybody who does this race to bottle up and take away. And just what you said, that this guy would run himself to the hospital. That's when you went beyond. That You know, the wonderful thing, I, I tell my dad this and he gets a kick out of it. I say, you know, the wonderful thing about the Olympics is it's the day you can prove science wrong. Because it's always, you always have the guy that should win by a landslide. But there's always that guy that's out there hungrier. And he's been told, he or she, he or she's been told they can't do it, you know, and they overwhelmingly do it. And then, you know, like to our Olympics and our American girl hands down the favorite she didn't do so good in the olympics yeah yeah so i i just love it love it and that's absolutely more of that magic i mean that's what people need in their life and that's where you can find that happiness i think (laughs) now Let's let's skip back a little. Let's get to your latest book that you have out, um, Running with Sherman, which also seemed to be a huge success and was such a fun read. Uh, what can you tell your tell us about your experience 
with Burroughs and more, I mean, more so like Sherman himself. Um, so, you know, I, we discussed that Burrow racing experience. I, I got to tell you, if it wasn't clear, it was not a happy experience. I did not enjoy <laughs> Burrow racing. Uh, I thought it was stupid. I thought it was really bad. I, I, I appreciate people who were good at it, uh, but I understood that this is not what people think it is. This is not running with your dog in the park. You no. Know? This is a very large, potentially dangerous animal, super strong, that is li- literally legendary for being stubborn. You know, like <laughs> you cannot pick another animal that's known for being not cooperative more than a donkey. So I didn't enjoy it. I realized, well, if you're going to enjoy it, you got to devote years to figuring this out. You know, uh, and when I, when I got a chance to interview Barb Dolan, who was oh, like sort uh-huh. of the, the grandmaster um, female equivalent, actually, even, I was going to say female equivalent of Curtis Emery, but no, because she's actually way faster than he ever was. Yeah, she, yes. <laughs> but, but as far as knowledge is concerned, she's on, definitely on his par as far as knowledge and then way above him in terms of uh, physical ability. But I would talk to Barb, and she said she would often have a burrow for three years before she would actually race with it. So she would have a rotation of, of burrows, but the junior ones, she would work in them for two, three years before she would actually take them on a race course. That's how difficult this uh, sport can be. So I tried it. Ain't for me. I'm not going to spend three years training a Nike in order to run this race at 10,500 feet. Forget it. No, thanks. But then, you know, again, years later, 10 years later, my uh, youngest daughter had, well, we were actually in Pennsylvania on a hike and saw a woman riding a donkey, you know, with a, with a pack saddle. And, uh, thought, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, what's going on here? And my daughter wanted one for her 10th birthday. So we ended up taking in a rescue donkey who was in really horrible physical shape. And, um, we had a friend who was a vet tech and she basically said, look, you got to give this animal a job. It has to do something. Like you can't just like stick that in the field like you are. You got to move it, you know, otherwise it's, it's dead. And so I'm kind of racing my mind. Like, what the hell am I going to do? I don't have a job for a donkey. What am I going to do with a donkey? Um, and I'm kind of searching my memory. Like, you know what? There's better races. Like, what if I could teach this donkey how to be my running partner? You know, if... Cole's dad can run with a donkey. Maybe I can get this one to run around the neighborhood. Like where we live in Pennsylvania, uh, Southern Lancaster County, is a very super rural, very remote area. Uh, most of our neighbors are Amish. And so we have these wide open roads. I can be on a road for two hours and never see a car. So I thought, oh, I'm going get this donkey and try and teach it how to run. And it, it basically became this long challenge, but I, I didn't realize, I think what's a universal truth about donkeys is if you have a problem with a donkey, just throw more donkeys at the problem. Like, <laughs> you know, if you want to get a donkey to move, just get another donkey and another donkey. So we ended up with three donkeys. And that combination of three donkeys uh, got the original one who had been very, very sick, uh, foundered, mm-hmm. long, un- unkept, uh, hooves colicky seriously bad shape and in a matter of a few months this animal began to really turn around because of the the herd mentality the the friendship of the other two donkeys and the fact that we were starting to run every day and so once we started to run i'm like huh, you know what uh, you know maybe it's time maybe it's time to circle <laughs> on back to leadville 
try some barrel racing. And so uh, we ended up actually not going to Leadville, but to Fair Play just because of timing, uh, mm-hmm. just to see. Uh, but that was it. That was that was the story of running with Sherman. It was looking at a couple things. One is just the raw adventure story, taking a very sick animal mm-hmm. and trying to see if I can train it up for a 29-mile running race. And the second aspect is looking at this whole phenomenon of human-animal partnerships. You know, we mm-hmm. we tend to think of animals like we're doing them a favor by making them pets, but we get so much more in return that we, we sort of take for granted. Yes, we do. Yes, for sure. Um, well, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we do get more for from them, but you've since traded your Pennsylvania farm for a plot on Island Paradise. <laughs> Dare I ask what's become of Sherman? Sure. So we had a couple things going on. So my wife is originally from Hawaii. And we met in downtown Philadelphia when she was doing a very supposedly brief rotation as a reporter for the Associated Press. So she was only going to be in Philly for maybe a year at most. Uh, but then she meets me and her life just kind of spiraled downhill. You know, so She meets me and we're living in Philly and we start to date, we get engaged, we get married, we have a baby. Three years roll by and she's still in Philly instead of going back to Hawaii. Um, and then we had this notion of like, hey, why don't we move out to the country? So we found this farm in Peach Bottom, moved out there. But always in my wife's mind, it was like, hey, what are you days? We're moving back to Hawaii, right? So what happened was there's this one particular neighborhood on Oahu that you had always loved. It's a little suburban neighborhood, nondescript, but we always looked around. Boy, if we ever found a house there, like that would be it. Mm-hmm. So we find this house in like, 2019 mm-hmm. and that's our dreams let's get it now uh even though my daughter wasn't going to graduate from high school for two more years let's get the house now and after she's in college we'll move so we buy the house and this was like dude it was like in july of 2019 and then we thought okay we'll rent it out for a couple of years but before we found any renters covid hits and remember back in the early days there was no covid on hawaii at all there was like almost zero infection rate Right. So I'm thinking, well, like, why the heck are we here in Pennsylvania <laughs> where people aren't wearing masks? The nearest hospital is 30 miles away. Um, we can be there. And so, just like that, in a matter of six weeks, I had this burning obsession like, let's rehome the animals, sell the farm, and move. If we can do it, we should go. But the first and biggest question was, where are the animals going to go? And if they can't go to a good home, we, we can't let them go. So I called our farrier. Um, for people who don't know, a farrier is a person who trims hooves. So we called Leslie and said, hey, Leslie, do you know anybody who can guarantee us a good home for all three donkeys? They're, they're bonded, so they have to stay together. You can't take one. It's, it's a package deal. And Leslie's like, yeah, I got somebody in mind. Like, this guy, me. <laughs> she had just inherited a 150-acre farm in the hills of Westchester, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, and she had a huge barn and she had this like heated drinking water system. And like, so instead of bashing the ice out, we're not splitting them all. Like that, animals had like warm heated water. She's like, I love those donkeys. I'll take them. And I'm like, okay. So, so Sherman is now living on Leslie's luxurious. <laughs> he went from five acres to 150. He went from me with a five gallon paint bucket hauling water out of the creek to like, he'd be drinking water 
Uh, Sherman and Flower and Matilda are now living in the lap of donkey and luxury. I mean, it sounds like Sherman has had two paradises in his life at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? The, the, the dude paid his dues, man. Yeah, <laughs> tough, tough, tough time before. So I am glad that uh, he came out the other end of the tunnel to people who really, really like him and, and care for him. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, we had a bro the same way. I named him Applejack. Uh, but he started out as sergeant in a very small, just, you know, probably foot and a half deep muddy field, you know, not very big in Oklahoma. And my dad's brother rescued him. So very similar. Uh, yeah, you do get attached to him and, and they, they do end up turn. You think they're in such despair, like you say, and they end up turning your life around twice as quick. That's right. For sure. Well, now, okay, we've covered off on Sherman and the book. Uh, you've got an exciting new project coming out. I think, what is it, December 6th? And that's titled Born to Run 2. Do you want to tell us what that project's like and about? Yeah, I'm actually psyched. This is actually the first public conversation I'm having about this. Because that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, because I just I just turned the manuscript in last Monday, so it's been uh, basically a week a week ago that I finished it, essentially turned it in. So, what this grew out of was, you know, ever since Born to Run came out, I get tons of messages like all the time, um, people asking me for advice. You know, how should I train? What should I eat? What kind of shoes should I wear? And I always say, like, don't ask me. Listen, I am not the expert. I write about the experts, but I don't know. The stuff, you know, I only get it from them. But the questions keep coming in, and it finally got through my head. If people are still asking 13 years later, then they, they want to know. And so I thought, why don't I team up with the guy who coached me, Eric Horton, and answer the questions, like write a book that gets at the heart of what you should do. So I think, you know, Born to Run is an adventure story that get, gets people inspired to run. Mm-hmm. But what they're lacking is the knowledge, you know. So now that they now they want to do it, well, you know, how should they train? What kind of shoes should they wear? What what kind of food should they eat? Um, should they run by themselves or in a group? Should they wear earbuds and listen to music or not listen to music? And that's the book we created. And what it is is it's a collection of both true life stories about people who have gotten into running and have tackled different challenges of it. And the second thing is. Um, real instrumental practical advice like here's a real simple thing that I really like a lot Cole is that you know if you ask a lot of people like well how how do you learn perfect running form well the answers can be really complicated you know like there's a whole book she running it's complicated but Eric said it doesn't have to be that hard if you were to learn perfect running he can teach you in five minutes and it's really simple what he does is he says take off your shoes Stand with your back against the wall and put on rock lobster on your, on, you know, on your, on your, any kind of music thing, you know, on your phone, uh-huh. put on rock lobster, stand about a foot from the wall and run in place. And that, that's perfect running for him. And the reason why is because rock lobster is a perfect 90 beats per minute. And so that's, that's the cadence you want to go for. So if you're running at 90 beats per minute, if you're running in place, you can't land on your heel. You can't overstride. You can't be off balance. And if you keep your back to the wall, 
you'll know whether you are sort of leaning in one direction or the other. You know, the, the wall is an indicator to you if you're leaning forward or backwards or sideways. And, and that's it. So little things like that, that's the kind of easy, intuitive, practical advice we're, we're gathering in this book. Well, that is extremely interesting. I mean, I think he probably can teach somebody perfect form in five minutes. Right? All it takes is rock lobster. <laughs> I mean, thinking that through, that is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really works. <laughs> well, and you say you don't have advice and you're not the runner and you write about that. Well, that's, you know, kind of my dad, too. He's you know, this bigger guy that really didn't have the form. And I think you both prove that's not true. So, um, you know, as far as Leadville's concerned and maybe not as much focused on footwear, what advice would you give to our Leadville family members on getting to that line come this summer? I think the best thing of all, is get there first. Um, go there well in advance and do what me and Micah and uh, Eric Gordon did together, which is just sample the course. Um, <laughs> in my case, it, it got me further than I thought I was going to get, put it that way. Um, but I think, leave everything else aside, if you can come to Leadville, ford that river, get a taste of Hope Pass from both sides, mm -hmm. you know, understand, like, what turquoise lake is like that's it you know it, it, it takes away so much of the mystery but you almost get a double bang for your buck not only are you going to get an invaluable amount of race knowledge but it's just so fun you know it's like so fun to be there when the racers aren't there right yes now on that premise what do you think of when you hear the word leadville I think of snowshoeing up the side of a mountain with your dad. <laughs> that um, is I'll, great. I'll tell you the reason why. It's one of those like flashbulb moments mm -hmm. because I came straight from Denver airport, drove straight to level race offices when rain sucked. Yeah. And we started to talk. So I saw nothing. I saw the airport, saw the road and sat in an office. And then your dad's like, let's go outside. And then all of a sudden, I went, well, I, I had never snowshoed before. I'd never been in this area before. I'd never really been in Colorado before. And suddenly, I'm snowshoeing up the side of a mountain, and I see all these beautiful pines. So that, that to me, that's, that was the lasting memory of Leadville, like this like sudden shock of daylight. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> that would be the, always the, the, the kind of postcard image in my brain. Boy, I love that. I, I don't think it gets much better than that. Now, I can't. Thank you enough for your time today, how much fun this has been, uh, how much I've, always, I've wanted to do this particular one with you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Is there anything else you want to say before I let you go? You know, Cole, I'm, you're making me very sentimental because um, I'm having the same experience with you that I've had with all of your family is that there's something about the Clovers. You meet them once and you're a relative. And I, I just appreciate that very much. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I certainly feel the same way with you. You've had that same generosity. And, uh, you know, my whole family can't thank you enough. I'm, what you've done for Leadville has helped also put us on the map and uh, just, just can't say thanks enough. You've done it all, man. You've done it all. I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> well, thank thanks, you. Paul. 
Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day. You got it, buddy. Let's talk again soon. Well, what a fun and great trip down memory lane. Um, I hope you enjoyed what you've heard today. I hope you've been able to answer some questions about the book Born to Run, if you had any. I hope you're excited to hear about Born to Run 2 coming out. And if you haven't read Running with Sherman, well, who doesn't love a fun tale with some donkeys involved? So you've got your reading ahead of you. Don't forget to give us a subscribe and like wherever you're getting your podcasts. And we can't wait to see you at home. We can't wait to see you in Leadville.